This morning, message number four. On the theme of assurance, and actually this isn't a topical study, it's an expositional study through Romans 8, specifically verses 13, the later half, through 17, in an ongoing study of the book of Romans. Assurance. When I talk about assurance, I'm talking about the confidence that people can have in this life that they are actually saved by the blood of Christ, actually partakers of what Christ did on the cross. Assurance that they are children of God, assurance that they are headed to heaven. Assurance that all is well with their soul. And we are dealing with true assurance. The assurance that those things are really so. Because the Bible shows us very plainly, as we've dealt with in the past, that many are confident they're going to heaven. Matthew 7, verses 21, 22, 23, show us that many are going to be very surprised on Judgment Day, to find out that they indeed are not children of God. They thought they were. But in fact, they were not. What I am hoping for is that God will give those of us in the church that are truly children of God great assurance. And that God will open the eyes, the blind eyes, of some who suppose that heaven is theirs. But in reality, it is not. Jesus Christ said, few there be that find it. And yet, the majority of Christians or the majority of Americans assume themselves Christians. There's a discrepancy there, which means a whole lot of people are wrong. And I know that a lot of people are wrong because they're under bad teaching and wrong teaching. And I don't want that to be the case here. I want us to see very clearly what the marks of true Christianity are. We've been considering them. We're going to look at another one today. And actually that mark has to do not only with the mark we look at that gives us assurance we're Christians, the mark itself is the mark of assurance. You follow what I mean by that? We've, we have looked at the fact that true Christians do battle with sin and actually put it to death. That's what the later half of verse 13 says. And in verse 14, the idea is we are led by the Spirit to put sin to death. And those who are so led are children of God. Those who are so led are children of God. At the end of verse 13, it says they're the ones who live. And obviously, the children of God are the ones who live. And you go into verse 14 and the characteristic there of being a true child of God is that you have a spirit of adoption who so works in you to give you a sense of the love of God that you actually burst forth in cries of Abba, Father. God is no longer distant to the Christian. God is near. Because Jesus Christ has broken down that wall and brought us near. You see, the, the truth of Christianity is not that we just believe in God. It's that we know God as our Abba. Today, we come to verse 16. And the mark here 
the mark of true Christianity here is that they actually possess assurance. Not that they just possess the marks by which they may look and be assured, but they actually possess assurance itself. Let's read Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, and remember the four there at the very beginning attaches us back to 8.13, which is speaking about putting to death the deeds of the body. So we know that the leadership of the Spirit is leading us to put sin to death. And all who do that by the Spirit put sin to death, live. The reason they live is because all who are so led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. They live not because they put to death deeds of the body. They live because they are sons of God. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. Why are all who are led by the Spirit of God sons of God? Because the Spirit by which they're led is a spirit of adoption. Which means if you have the Spirit, you're adopted. And if you're adopted, you're a son. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And where, you, where there are individuals that have that spirit of adoption, it creates an overflow of affection and love and nearness to God and a God-directedness, even a Father-God-directedness by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself, verse 16 the Spirit Himself, and this is where we're going to give our attention this morning. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Verse 17, Lord willing, we will be looking at in about three or four weeks. Some of you are familiar with the famous evangelist George Whitfield, who's often associated with the First Great Awakening. You may not know this, and then again you may. Whitfield, during his life, kept journals. And if you were to find those journals and locate his entry for Thursday, January 1st, 1741, you would find under that date that Whitfield records for us a letter written by a Mr. Hugh Bryan. A letter by Mr. Bryan, not written to Whitfield, but written to Mr. Bryan's own niece. You see... Mrs. Bryan went off into eternity only several months before this. And Mr. Bryan writes a letter to his niece describing the death of his wife. Listen to this. This is Mr. Bryan writing to his niece. Dear child, Underwritten are the dying words of your aunt, which I send for your satisfaction and information. She died October 7, between the hours of 9 and 10 in the morning, being filled, and get this, being filled with the full assurance of faith in Christ and a joyful hope of eternal salvation through his merits and mediation, as your aunt and I were praying to our Lord Jesus to give her the comforts of His Holy Spirit, to support her under the agonies of death, she replied, I see Him. I see Him. Now I see light. After this, she continued in prayer about half an hour. But her speech 
failing her. We could not during that time understand what she spake. Only we could hear the name of Jesus often. Come, Jesus. Come, Jesus. Then again she spake out plainly and said, Who would die without God? Now I see light. Then she lay in an agony about half an hour. And again spake out and said, God has let me see great and glorious things, which would not be believed if they were told. Then speaking to all in the room, she said, God has enabled me to speak to you before I go, for I am just going. Then she said, God is a just God as well as merciful. Be diligent in searching your hearts. She says, my pain is great, but Christ is sufficient for me. And she repeated that God had let her see great things that would not be believed if they were told. She also said, follow Whitfield. God will bless him wherever he goes. Do not speak lightly of him. Bless him. Bless him. God has enabled me to speak to you before I go. I am just going. Farewell. Farewell. God be with you. Then she composed herself and lay about half an hour. Neither moved nor groaned except her lips and tongue. And the heaving of her breast in breathing. Seeming to be in her perfect senses until about a minute before she died, she looked round at each of us that were about her bed and then departed in quietness. Whitfield adds, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory over true believers? What Fools are they who count the lives of Christians to be madness. Here's a woman on the brink of eternity. Her husband is there watching as his wife stares death straight in the face. And he sums up what he sees by saying she was filled with the full assurance in Christ. Death has its icy grip on this dear woman and there is no terror. Rather, assurance. If we must die, and we must, this is the way to die. This is the way you want to die. But I'll tell you this. Even more than that. This is the way to live. Not just the way that's best to live. But the way God designed for His children to live. What I am going to argue for this morning is this. Living with assurance is not only a more desirable way for God's children to live, but living with assurance is a necessary way for God's children to live. In other words, assurance doesn't just make it more comfortable to be a child of God. Spirit-given assurance proves whether or not I'm a child of God. I'll tell you this, I come from a part of Michigan where that would be considered heresy, what I just said. Lacking assurance is counted to be a great mark of spirituality. Doubt and despair is seen as godliness. And maybe some of you sitting in this place right now are doubting whether or not what I just said to you is true. But I hope that it's not me that convinces you of that today. I hope it's God that convinces you of that. And I think if, if you'll look at Scripture honestly, you'll see that what I'm saying is true. I get this from Romans 8.16. Let's read it together. The Spirit Himself 
bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, first, let's see the picture that Paul paints for us here. We might want to imagine a courtroom. Can you figure out why? Because you have witness bearing going on here. And you are the one on trial. And you are being accused of being a child of God. The prosecutor is now going to produce witnesses that are going to give evidence and bear witness to the fact that you're guilty as charged. That you indeed are a child of God. Now make sure you see this. There is not only one witness in verse 16. There are two. This verse does not say that the Spirit Himself bears witness to our spirit, but rather with our spirit. Now, and you know what, folks? There's no mistaking this in the original language. It means our spirit is also bearing witness. The picture Paul paints for us is of two witnesses. So the first witness is called to the stand. And that first witness is my own spirit. I mean, we ask ourselves this. What kind of testimony can my own spirit bring? How can it convince the court of my being a child of God? What witness is there there? Well, in another letter, Paul says this. Examine yourself. That's exactly the kind of witness that my own spirit can bear. My own spirit has the ability to look at the God-given marks of Christianity in the Scriptures and bear witness as to whether or not that's true or not. Right? I mean, what is it? You go to 1 John. What are some clear marks of being a child of God? You practice righteousness. You love the brethren. You know what my spirit can do? My spirit can examine my life and produce evidence as to whether those things are true or not. Can it not? In a very objective fashion, it can examine the life, it can look and see if these things are clear or not, and then my spirit can be called to take the stand and bring forth evidence that proves whether I'm a Christian or not. But there are two witnesses. And in fact, my witness is not the main one emphasized in this, script, in this passage, verse 16. There's another now you see what happens here. Now with power and glory, the mighty Spirit of God takes the witness stand. And how does He take the stand? You know what? Sometimes it's like a gentle breeze. And sometimes like a gale force wind. He has come for this very reason. To bear Witness along with my spirit. Now, you guys, this word in verse 16 for bearing witness carries the idea that the spirit puts forth effort to show that something is true. And this verse is absolutely clear as to exactly what it is the spirit shows us to be true. He confirms what? That we are children of God. He breathes into us an assurance sent from our Heavenly Father. Deep expressions of God's love and affection for us. That are mysteriously spoken into our souls. So much so that you can't contain yourself. You can't hide it. We saw in the last verse. It spills out and cries of Abba Father. You can't hide it. You're guilty. There's no mistaking it. The very cry on your lips gives you away. The testimony of the Spirit is too powerful for you to contain. I mean, when that Spirit takes the stand and He begins to bear His witness and you erupt in an Abba Father, every head in the courtroom turns. I mean, the very words you spoke gave yourself away. Look! He's calling God His Father, His Abba, His Daddy. There's no mistake about it. That's God's Son. That's a child of God. 
your own heart finds you wonderfully guilty. What I'm saying to you is this. Our own spirit can and should and does examine the objective evidence whereby we logically deduce whether there are visible evidences of our Christianity. But, now this is what you need to see. Every true child of God receives assurance beyond our own logical deductions. There is a fuller, deeper, subjective, supernatural affirmation that comes to us. Not just an emotional high because it's a nice day, but a living, divine person communicates with us. And never lose the connection with what Paul just said in the preceding verse. It is as the spirit of adoption that God's spirit carries out his witness-bearing ministry. His witness-bearing makes my adoption and sonship real and precious and heartfelt. This is a spiritual dynamic that only those who have experienced it can even begin to describe. And then we're limited in the way we can express it because we're limited by the very, the very limitations of words themselves. Words can never sufficiently express the meltings and the sweetness and the joys and the expressions of love that pulsate through our souls when God speaks directly to me and says, you are mine. Here's what I'm contending for. The assurance of my salvation that results from the supernatural witness of the Spirit it's not the exception. It's not the special case. It's not unusual or rarely found, but it is the norm for God's children. Not for a few of God's people some of the time. What is described here is an act of God meant to produce assurance that is typical and regular in the life of a Christian. In other words, I'm saying that if your Christianity is only something that you have logically concluded. And you are basically unfamiliar with the operations of the Spirit of God in your life that attest to you being a child of God, then it's very likely you're not a child of God. Now, I want to show you that I'm on track here thinking this way. Look, what I'm essentially aiming to do this morning is destroy the notion that God's true children can walk around in a habitual pattern of doubt and unbelief and lack of assurance. I want to make the case that assurance is not just nice, it is necessary. And I've got four proofs of that. First, just take Romans 8.16 at face value. What does it say? The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now folks, I hope this isn't, isn't too complicated. If someone, look at what Paul is saying. If someone is a child of God, the Spirit bears witness that they are a child of God. The Spirit is not impotent. In other words, he accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish. The whole assumption here is that if the Spirit intends to bear witness, that witness is received. That's why in the previous verse, we cry out, Abba, Father. Not because the witness is missed, but because we feel it. We sense it. It overwhelms us to where it overflows and affectionate cries for our Father in heaven. Because that witness attests to us in a way that is heard and understood and felt and experienced. Now look, there is not a single word here in verse 16. Not a single suggestion that indicates anything other than this. The Spirit 
functions as a witness bearer wherever you find a true child of God. Now, now look, there are doubtless varying degrees of intensity to this witness. It is nevertheless Paul's point here to make out the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit, to be one who consistently bears witness of my adoption. So just taking the text at face value, we need to admit that assurance coming from the Spirit's witness is common to God's children. Not foreign. Second, look at the primary verb in verse 16. The Spirit Himself does what? Bears witness. That is a present active verb, which denotes a continuous kind of action being carried out by the Spirit. Look, unless we force our own meaning on this verse, we really can't conclude anything but that the Spirit in an ongoing manner, is involved in the work of bearing witness and affirming the sonship of those who are really sons. Now, I'm neither forcing my own agenda on this text, nor am I forcing meanings out of these words that are not natural to their meanings. You see, what I'm arguing for is this. If I'm a child of God, the Spirit Himself will bear witness of that fact in a regular, ongoing fashion. Romans 8.16 is not just something the Spirit of God might do in the life of a child of God. It's not something seldom done. It's not the exception, but rather it's characteristic of the Spirit, to be a witness-bearer with God's children. Now, I actually find this to be enormously comforting. Because you know what that tells me? It tells me that I have every reason to expect that from here to the time of death, that the Spirit of God regularly and continuously is going to confirm to me in supernatural ways of communication that I am His. And I want that. And I long for that. You see, I take this as a promise. Some, some will take it as exclusionary. And you should. If you don't know about this, then look, what I'm telling you to do is not get all offended. I'm telling you, find true Christianity so that you too can know this. The third thing I would say is to, to affirm that I'm on the right track here is the context. Let me ask you this question. Has Paul been dealing in these verses that we've been looking at, at over the last few weeks with what is true of some Christians some of the time? Or has he been dealing with what is generally characteristic of all Christians all the time? I mean, you tell me. Verse 13. Do all Christians put sinful deeds of the body to death by the Spirit? Is that characteristic of all Christians as a consistent overall pattern of their lives? Or only of some Christians some of the time? You tell me. Blurt it out. All. It's got to be all. It's clearly evident it describes all. Why? Because the reason we know that, the sure proof, is because... It's only those people that have eternal life. That's what the last three words of verse 13 say. You will live. And only children of God live. And so we know that that is characteristic. That is a proof of those who are children of God. And verse 14 goes on more fully to show us it's those that are led in that fashion that are sons of God. I mean, the clear implication of verse 13 is all children of God put sinful deeds to death. The clear implication of verse 14 is all children 
are led by the Spirit. The clear implication of verse 15 is what? That all children have the Spirit of adoption. You jump over verse 16 to verse 17, what do you think? Is it clearly implied there that all children are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ, or just some? All. See, folks, the plain reading of the surrounding context shows us we would have to totally miss the whole construction here to conclude that true Christians can basically live without assurance of their salvation. On the contrary, this whole section has the natural appearance of being what is descriptive and normative of all God's children. Now, fourth, one, one last evidence here to support that we are going in the right direction. I think it would help us to consider the parallels between assurance and righteousness. The reason I want to compare them both is because they're both here in this portion of Scripture as evidences of the children of God. And they are both by the Spirit, are they not? Do we not by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body? Which produces righteousness, right? You put sin to death that you might live righteously. It's done by the Spirit. You're led by the Spirit to do that. And then it's the Spirit's witness that comes to us, bearing witness with our spirit, but it's us receiving the witness. I mean, we receive the witness of our own spirit when we examine ourselves. We receive the witness of the Spirit when He bears that witness. Both of these are operations of the Spirit of God. They're, they're very similar. And listen, when we first got in this section, for some of you, it was very difficult to come to this, to come to the place where you were actually comfortable with saying that sin will not have dominion in the life of a Christian. Some of you struggled with that when you first heard it. Some of you struggled with the idea that Christians are dead to sin. Some of you have struggled because your concept of Christianity was skewed. The biblical picture of a Christian is one who practices righteousness. The biblical picture of a Christian is one who practices a regular, habitual mode of assurance. Now look, I'm comparing them. Because just like you fight sin and put to death the deeds of the body more aggressively at times in your life, and maybe less aggressively at other times, but as a pattern, that's what you're doing, so with assurance, there may be times when that assurance is on fire, and there may be times when it's ebb and flow in your life is characteristic. But you see, the whole point is, with righteousness, you may fall into sin. But nevertheless, the overall practice, the overall picture, the general characterization, characterization of your life is what? One of righteousness, one of holiness, one of purity. That's not to say perfection. That's not to say the righteous man can't fall seven times. It's not to say that sees. And it's the same way with assurance. Listen, you can grieve the Spirit. There might be seasons of darkness. There may come a time when that assurance is lacking and doubt is there and lack of assurance. Just like there may be times in your life when there are impurities that you have allowed in. But as a whole, I'm telling you, assurance will characterize your life. You know why it will? For the same reason that righteousness will. Because there is an almighty Spirit of God indwelling you that sees to it that it happens. That's the reality of this, folks. That's what we're looking at. This really matters. Unbelief and doubts and despair and lack of assurance will not be the dominant characteristic in the life of the Christian. The tendency, the disposition will be to have divine affirmations. 
that I indeed am a child of God. I don't believe I'm pressing anything. that is not clearly in this verse. So folks, I come now to my last point for the morning. I have a concern here. The Apostle John writes this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Just because you have an impression that you are saved, or even a supernatural experience in which you sense a feeling of well-being and peace and security. Michael Morellis can tell you about his lost days. He can tell you about going to Benny Hinn. He can tell you about what he experienced and felt. I'm here to tell you just because you have a supernatural experience, just because you have an affirmation or a feeling about being a child of God does not mean it's from the Holy Spirit. Remember, folks, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He disguises his voice to sound like the voice of God's Spirit. He assures multitudes that everything is okay, when in fact they are not in Christ. And it is not okay. And they are not safe. So the question is this, how can I and how can you distinguish the witness of God's Holy Spirit from the witness of deceiving demonic spirits. Well, here it is. The witness of God's Spirit is primarily and especially a revelation of a personal interest in the sufferings of Christ. Did you get that? My sonship is verified to me when the Spirit reveals and affirms and makes known to me that Jesus Christ specifically went to the cross, shed His blood, bore God's wrath for me. That's the connection. That's a common connection. This isn't the witness that Christ did this for the whole world. That's not what I'm talking about. This is no general witness, but this is the witness that it is all for me, personally, specially. Christ suffered, died, agonized for me, securing for me my own sonship with God. Maybe you're wondering where I get this from. Since it really doesn't say this in Romans 8.16, let me show you where I get this from. Look at Romans 5. Five. Mr. Butterbaugh took us there earlier. I want you to notice this. Romans 5.5. 5. You're not far away from it if you're in Romans 8. You just turn back maybe a page. And hope does not put us to shame. Now here it is. This is what I really want you guys to grasp. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, you can look at this text and you might be thinking, okay, I see here God's love. It's poured into our hearts. It's done so through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now think with me here. This statement could actually be taken one of two ways. God's love here might either be the love God has for me. He might pour into my heart expressions of His love for me. 
Or it could be referring to a love that God gives to me with which I love others. Because God does that. Does He not? Is not one of the fruits of the Spirit love? Now, which is it? Is this God working in my heart to cause me, by the Spirit's influence, to love others? Or is this God working in my own heart, giving expressions of His own love to me? I mean, that's a good question. Which is it? Well, you know what? There's no doubt that this speaks of God's love that He specifically has for His children and not a love that He gives to His children with which to love others. And you know how I know this? I know this because of what follows. The context gives it away. Look at the next verse. Verse 6. Romans 5, 6. For. Now, it seems like we keep seeing that word. But that means it's connected back. That means he's going to expound on what he just said in five. It means he's going to build upon it. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For, verse seven, here he goes. He's still building further. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. Verse eight, but God shows his love what? For us. There you have it. This is the love that's being talked about. God shows His love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see that? God shows His love for us. Nothing here has to do with a love God pours into us for others. Yes, He does that. But that isn't the issue here. What verse 5 is clearly saying is that God's love for me is demonstrated to me in Christ's death for me. It's poured into me by way of the Holy Spirit who has been given to me. The verse says virtually. Now now catch this. This verse says virtually the same thing Romans 8.16 says. Over there, the Spirit bears witness of my sonship. Over here in 5.5, the Spirit pours expressions of God's love for us into our hearts. Over there, He guarantees us of sonship being a spirit of adoption which erupts inside of us, Abba, Father, there's definitely a sight of God's love for us. That's what you have happening right there in Romans 5. God, by His Spirit, giving us sight of God's love for us and pouring that through His Spirit into our hearts. It's the same deal, guys. It's the same thing. Virtually the same. And look, don't let the past tense in Romans 5.5 5 trip you up. Leading you to think God has once and for all poured His love into our hearts. This is an ongoing thing. Just like Romans 8.16. The verb has been poured sounds in English like past tense. In the Greek, it is perfect tense. Which means it is an ongoing, continuous reality based on something that has been completed in the past. What was completed in the past is the death of Christ. That's done in the past. But now, as an ongoing testimony, what does 5.8 say? Does it say God demonstrated or God has shown or did show His love for us in the death of Christ? It says He demonstrates. It says He shows it. It's present. This is what He's doing now. He, guys, you have to see this. Because this is where the whole spiritual dynamic of assurance comes. The Spirit of God does not assure us of sonship apart from assuring us that the very work demonstrated by the Father in the Son of God on the cross was completed for me. 
How do we know the Father's love for us as it's demonstrated in the cross? That's exactly the connection that we have to see. This is experiencing God's love. Child of God, you know this. You know this. You know in our songs. You know when the cross is set before you of those affirmations that it's for you. If you're a true child of God, that's the case. That's going to happen. There's going to be an assurance as that. I'm not saying it's the same every time. This is a subjective element of the Christian life. No doubt about it. There may be different intensities. But what I'm saying is this. This doesn't say that God might pour out His love. It doesn't say God might demonstrate His love. It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit might bear witness. In all those cases, folks, it says that's what happens. And we've got to come to grips with that. And that needs to be the kind of Christianity that we encourage, that we support, that we teach, and that we expect. And I'll tell you what, child of God, take that, take these things as promises. Take them that. Now look, you've got to see the connection here. One is subjective. One element. One element of this is very objective. It's based on a historical reality. Which is what? The fact that God gave His Son up. That is the historical fact. That our subjective assurance, subjective movements of the Spirit of God in bearing witness will work from. Do you see why it is so absolutely necessary that this church have good, right, true, solid doctrine, but also that we are a Spirit-empowered church, a Spirit-manifest church, a Spirit-endowed church, You've got to have both. You've got to. It's essential. You learn about the nature and the vastness of the love of God from the way that love acted in history in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But then, as a child of God, you experience that love as a present, life-changing reality as the Holy Spirit pours witness of that love into my heart. This is why it is so Utterly essential that our singing, our preaching, our ordinances, they all go back again and again and again and again to the cross. Without that, we lack the very substance through which the Spirit bears witness. Listen to me. This is essential that we grasp this. If we seek after experiences of the love of God without solid foundations from the historical accounts of the Word of God pertaining to the person and work of Jesus Christ, we open ourselves up for every kind of demonic deception. Every kind. But if on the other hand, we claim to understand the love of God simply because we're well studied, simply because we've deduced it from a doctrine, simply because we have studied the confessions and the reformers and the Puritans, but we do not experience the subjective aspect of God pouring His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, then we just simply become barren and impotent and intellectual only. This is why it's so essential that we have both and that we protect both elements with a passion. We will have far, far, far more assurance in this church and far fewer false professions where we exalt Christ crucified while at the same time seeking the power and testimony of the Holy Spirit. Eliminate one or the other and we have major problems. How can I know that God loves me? How can I know that His love is real 
and that I'm not full of some false hope? The answer, God gives an experience of the love of God in the cross of Christ that is self-authenticating. When it happens, you know that it is the love of God. I experience it, and if you are a Christian, you experience it too. I'm not talking about some happy feeling because it's a sunny day kind of deal. I'm talking about the deep joy that surrounds a sense of love that captivates us. It smothers us with love and is always connected to the great suffering and sacrifice of the Son of God on our behalf. False spirits, deceiving spirits, they will give assurance and a false sense of peace based on everything under the sun except the cross. They will never take you there. Oh, they will make you feel all tingly. But it will not be because the shed blood of Christ is being made a reality to you. It will be because of your experiences. That's what we find in Matthew 7. It will be because of your experience with demons, casting them out, speaking in tongues, mighty experiences, mighty works done in your life, being healed, God's kind providence. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, not to affirm that you are God's child. Look, I hope you guys can see this. To deny that Christians will and must experience assurance is to deny Romans 5.5 5 and Romans 8.16. Open your mouths wide, brethren. That terminology of Romans 5.5 5 is God pouring. Open your mouths wide that God might pour this into you. We need to drink deeply from this love. We need to build our lives on this love. We need to yearn for it and long for it and desire it and go after it. Brethren, behold the glory of Christ in all His sufferings. Yearn and burn with me over this. We know this, brethren. This is not foreign to God's people. To take our eyes and set them on Christ's sufferings and to hear back from God by way of the Spirit, I did this for you. That is assurance. That is it. You're dismissed.